You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Millennium Discourses with Sajjad Ayyub and Sheikh Ibrahim Skatema. We're covering Discourse 7. Allah is in charge. Allah is in charge. Most of us are doing our best to be in control. That is, you know, it's, it's profound. What does that mean to us and you? If you truly knew that all outcomes of your life are kind of, they're a foregone conclusion. It might change quite dramatically how you experience what you do at any given point in time. There's, um, so it relates to the point that we made in the previous discourse, and it's the distinction between a person whose experience of life is a fullness that empties, or a person whose experience of life is an emptiness that seeks to be full. If I am managing the affair and I think I can manipulate outcomes in my interest, then basically I am needy of those outcomes. I'm my, the structure of my being and my intent is an emptiness that seeks to be filled. If I know that all outcomes are outside of my hands, that there's an ingenuity that's at work that I cannot account for, it means that 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 um, I can there, uh, it frees me to act spontaneously and unconditionally in terms of what I can put into the situation. So, so it is the 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 price of of truly experiencing freedom and truly experiencing a sense of autonomy to your life. It's paradoxical is to forego the illusion that you can actually act in your own interests and produce outcomes. That Allah is in charge. That there's a that that, that there's a boss to this entire affair, and the boss isn't you. You know that um, it's the point we made before about the archer, the archer, uh, the archer, the, the archer's role in the entire drama is to pull, is to draw the bow, you know, Allah flies the arrow. So it is, you know, that's, that's, that really isn't up to you. And it's, it's a piece of, of almost emotional hygiene to bear this truth in mind. Um, particularly when things aren't going your way, you know, when your, your senses that I'm, you know, I'm, um, I've got to work so hard and my life is so tough and I'm not achieving anything that I want and, uh, you know, everything's being withheld from me and um, just give up, on the, give up on the affair of producing the outcome and just look at what you can contribute right now and do that unconditionally. Thank you. I mean, we often treat the world like a business. I do this many good acts, I get Jannah. And you make a point, till the end, things can change. Mm -hmm. The sinner can go to Jannah 
and a saint mm. compared to Jahannam. Mm. You know, Sajan Saab, we... What... So, so... I personally find it somewhat objectionable that we have um, um, an idiom whereby we look at Allah, which is like a grocer, you know, that we have a, we have, we have a, like a negotiating relationship with this being, you know, that, uh, uh, um, you know, so, so I, I, I've done the, the Tajud Sermonera cards. You owe me, you know, um, really? Um, where, where's the contract? Who said? Um, you know, this idea that you can actually put yourself in a negotiating position with the boss of bosses is just completely gobsmacking. It's just astonishing, you know? So it's again this issue, you know, stop looking beyond the grave for doing worshipful things now. Stop looking towards the future to doing worshipful things now because that still is at some level doing violence to the truth. It's quite feasible to do worshipful things now because you are grateful for what you've already received. Not because you suspect you might not receive what is your due. Do you understand me? If I'm doing it now because I want a better akhirah, I suspect that, hold on, if I don't modify, the boss is going to put me in a hot place. You know, this is a... I mean, that's kind of, I don't know, that's a bit undignified apart from anything else. I mean, you know, uh, how about, how about uh, doing something in gratitude for what I've received? You see, I mean, I firmly believe that Allah gives us our relationship with other people as a metaphorical terrain for us to explore our relationship with him. So let's look at the issue of reward, because that's what this is looking at. You know, the, you know what am I going to get in Akhira, the issue of reward. And let's say you are the boss of a business and you're sort of wondering about why should I reward these people who work for me? So one of your advisors, he's probably your HR advisor, um, comes to you and says, listen, you must reward these people because it will motivate them. Another, the guy who's the operational head of that part of the business comes to you and says, no, man, that's not why you reward people. You must reward people in gratitude for what they've done. Which would you experience as the more authentic experience of reward? The one where you, where, if you were the employee, the boss is either, either rewarding you in gratitude for what you've done or the boss is rewarding you in order to motivate you. Well, I can tell you the first one, if I was the subordinate, the first one I'd experience is authentic and the second one I'd experience is manipulating. You know, it's then part of a manipulating dance. Now, and it's because they look, they look in different directions. When I am grateful for what, when the boss expresses gratitude for what you've done, I'm not trying to behold a carrot in front of you. I'm not saying do more. I'm saying by gratitude doesn't say give me more. Gratitude says what you've done is, is, is fantastic. It's a lot. Motivation says I'm giving you this so that I can get more. 
It's a manipulative experience. So we've, we, now this does not mean to say that quite possibly there is a reward in, in Akhira for having done uh, good stuff. That, you know, that doesn't mean to say even as a job, as, as, as a boss rather, in a workplace that if you rewarded people fairly, that it would have a motivating effect. But you don't have to construct the intent around that. So coming back to this issue is, are you so parsimonious with your praise of him to say, I'll only continue praising you because you're going to give me a place in Jannat. Is that how mean-spirited you are with your Rabb? I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, it's, it's actually quite shameless. It is like the child, the child or, 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 or the man comes into the, the, the court of the king and the king showers him with, uh, with, 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 with an impoverished man. You know, completely destitute, comes into the court of the king, and the king showers him with the blessings and and boon and food and drink and the most wonderful stuff. And the guy says, "Well, I'm just going to say thank you to this king because I maybe he'll give me some more." I mean, surely there's something like almost damaged about that. Being worshipful means that you are rooting your entire engagement with your life in gratitude. If you aren't in rooting the engagement of your life in gratitude, your worshipfulness is not actually being worshipful. Your worshipfulness is the petty trading of a, of a, of a grocer. You're, you're putting your, it's just, it, the whole thing is undignified and unedifying and unworthy of you actually as a human being. Because you are, you're, you know, you are the descendant of Adam. I mean, you carry the most noble in you. This is unworthy of you. So I say again, this doesn't suggest that there won't be rewards in hereafter, but don't make that your motive. Make your motive the sincere gratitude for what you've already received. You know that the antonym of kufr isn't just belief. It is gratitude. To be kafir is both not to trust the future and to be ungrateful. So if you're doing worship now to get a better akhirah, what you're saying, what he's given you is not good enough. That's ingratitude. That's kufr. It's kufr that wears an abaya on a kufiya and knocks his head on the floor, but it's still kufr. So the sinner can be given Jannah and the Saint Jahannam. How does that build into what you said? Well, is that possible? Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, uh, this is from uh, from from uh, the Siraj. I mean, the, the Rasul said this, so this is entirely possible. So, your entire life 
is a preparation ground actually for an event and that event is your death and when we say i mean we we have a this sort of teleological view of purpose the outcome is the purpose well that means to say your purpose is to die because your outcome is death the whole of your life is a practice ground for that moment that possibility has that that has two possibilities in the first instance you could say when i die everything gets taken away from me unconditionally or you can say when i die i give everything unconditionally the the, the difference between the two is really quite dramatic um you know, if uh, 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 there's a, you know, if somebody steals, I think we've spoken about this before, somebody steals a thousand pounds from you, or you give somebody a thousand pounds, the difference in the two experiences does not sit in the thousand pounds, it sits in the person who's going through the experience. You know, so, and, and uh, you know, if you, if, uh, if you say, well, which of the two experiences would you find pleasing and acceptable, it's certainly not the one where the thousand pounds get taken from you, it's the one where you give the thousand pounds. And we view death from this point of view. In other words, the loss of the thousand pounds is like death. Um, in other words, it's absolutely predictable. You know, uh, which one of the two experiences is, 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 is horrifying and which is acceptable? Well, the one where it all gets taken away from you, that's horrifying. And the one where everything, where you give it all, that's affirmation, it's blessing. It's, you know, so, so basically, when we die, our capacity to give unconditionally is put under test. Everything that you did prior to this is school. The exam is Malikal Mot as he comes creaking through the door and you get a whiff of him. Who are you now? Can you give it all? Is it all going to be taken away from you? Now, some people need to do a lot of messing up in order to be able to pass that exam. They need to get to the point where they truly say, I've tried everything to pursue my own interests and it's all failed. Me trying to go for my own interests has been an unspeakable disaster. Mm. Ya Rab, take it. I'm, I give it unconditionally. So all of the misbehavior over his lifetime was the school that enabled him to, in the last moment, be the one who vindicates the first call. Am I not your Rab? Yes, you are. You've given me wildly in excess of my due. Um, there's none praiseworthy but you. And maybe it takes a life of misdoing to, to be able to pass that exam. You get another person who had a life worth of good behavior in the spirit of a grocer. He's done all the right things. So he steps into the grave. Hey, boss, you owe me. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. In other words, this person isn't giving the whole thing over, handing over unconditionally. This person is stepping into the sort of trying to make a claim, trying to say, I'm owed. So it's entirely possible that you could completely fail at this project of dying. Mm. You know, you, could, you can die very poorly. You can die or you can die eloquently. And the reason why you have a life prior to that last moment is to set you up to be able to pass that exam. You know, and you could be doing all of the apparently right things, but because you've had the wrong intent, uh, you, 
you uh, you um, you don't die giving anything. You got you die with an expe expectation to get, or you can die unconditionally, handing it over to the Rock. That's in a flash, literally in the flash. That last breath, that last moment, is the seal. Everything that happened prior to that was the gymnasium. You could have failed at jumping the bar every single time so that you can learn in the last breath how to jump the bar. Or you could have been playing, thinking you've been jumping the bar, but actually been jumping you know, little, little bars, just play, 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 not actually handing the matter over. And doing all the culturally accepted things so that it looks like you're going through the motions and not pass the exam. You also described the practice of the Persian weavers putting a floor in their carpets while, while saying dhikr over every knot. Mm. The, the, the deliberately putting a flaw is an abnegation of competence. So there's a double abnegation of competence. I, in putting in the flaw, I remind myself of my own frailty. In pronouncing the vicar, I remind myself of his genius his capability. And so that's in a sense what makes these carpets so extraordinarily beautiful because they, they have within that there's, 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 there's real soul being breathed into them. There's a, um, they are, they, from one point of view, they're a celebration of the most incredible competence, but at the other, the, on the other side, they're also a statement of complete humility. And, and between the two, you actually have the human problem. I mean, the, what are, the thing that we struggle with, you know, because we can do amazing things as human beings. And how do we create the conditions where our own PR doesn't go to our head? Uh, well, you do what they do. You deliberately mess things up a little bit, you know, and you constantly remind yourself of the fact that it's all from him and it's all for him and it's all through him. Thank you for that. In your story, you've described of the sparrows of the South African one cent. Can you relate to this? So this is a story that came from the Boer War and, and um, uh, it relates to, so I, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there, was, there were two phases in the, in the Anglo-Boer War. It was a war fought between the two sort of Dutch republics of the interior of South Africa and the, the, the British Empire. And uh, the, 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 the second one was really quite terrifying. I mean, it, um, the, the, uh, uh, there were two phases to the war. The first phase of the war was um, conventional. And the second phase of the war, so after the Brits actually occupied the capitals of the two Boer republics, so, so that's the, the uh, Pretoria of the Transvaal Republic and Bloemfontein of the, uh, the Free State Republic, the Boer forces basically 
became they they stopped the the the, the conventional campaign and they became guerrilla forces. And in this period, it is very difficult to the Brits for the Brits to control the country. And eventually, um, through the uh, the it was the decision of the um, the commander in chief of the British forces at the time, a man by the name of Lord Kitchener, to basically have a scorched earth policy. They would burn all the farms and they would take the women and children and put them in concentration camps. In fact, the Brits invented the concentration camp. There's some debate um, among the Afrikaner people whether this was a deliberate genocidal act, because there were some people who had uh, at least ethnic cleansing um, intentions, like the, the governor of the Cape, a guy called Milner, he wanted to get rid of these people completely, and for good, if he couldn't kill them off, he was going to exile them all to, I don't know, Patagonia or somewhere. But uh, however, the, the, the conditions, whether it was deliberate genocide or not, the conditions in these camps were shockingly dire and people died like flies. A, a very small uh, population of the Boon nations at the time, 20, a very small uh, population rather, 25,000 of them died. So I think it's about like one in every four uh, women and child died in the course of the camps. It is shocking. So this is the historical context. One of these camps was in a town in the Cape called Bethuli. And um, oh, actually Southern, uh, Southern Free State, I think it's Bethuli. And there was, um, the, there was a, uh, a, 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 a two booed women were in this camp as internees and people were dying around them like flies. Their own kinspeople were dying around them like flies. And they prayed, they read, you know, they were Christian people, so they read from the Bible every day. There was like part of their Calvinist kind of uh, ritual. And they read a passage in the Gospels where, where, where Jesus says that, uh, you know, there's a, um, the, the, the sparrow, uh, you can buy two sparrows for a farthing in the market. And yet those wild sparrows go home satisfied every night that their Lord looks after them. You know, so it's like a, that your life works basically. And then being in this dire situation, they made a prayer. They pray, prayed to, to God saying that if, uh, if we survive this camp, and the English don't kill us, we will campaign to have two sparrows on the smallest denomination of South African coin into perpetuity to remind the people about who the provider actually is. He will take, you can get two sparrows for a farthing in the market and he makes sure that every one of them fly home satisfied, fly to the nest satisfied. So that's what they did. They um, uh, immediately after the war, from that point forward, on the smallest denomination of South African coin, you always had two sparrows. And um, uh, tragically, this has now stopped. You no longer get two sparrows on the smallest denomination of South African coin. And I think that's a great tragedy because um, it is a great reminder. It is a zikr to people. You know, I mean, for, for a long time, I used to collect them. And I used to give them to people as a gift. 
And they think of it, what are you insulting me? Why are you giving me? So just have a look at that. Have a look at what's on there. And then know where your rizq come from, comes from. You know, the, the, he's the provider. He will look after you. That's the story of the two sparrows on the, what was, I wonder, whenever the denomination for, for, I don't know, the better part of 70 years, whenever the smallest, there was a new smallest denomination, the two sparrows went on to that. We've got about a minute or so. <clears throat> Just thinking, should we go for the next question? Some might listen to what you're saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hasn't made this fair world, as you say, despite a life of piety. Yeah, but yeah, well, it's for the same reason that we've just discussed. I mean, um, uh, he hasn't made it fair, but but we, we think unfair I'm being done in. But what about unfair? You're the one who's doing the doing in. Mm. <laughs> hey, I mean, uh, I mean, he, there's, there's uh, uh, you know, um, I arrive at the gates of a city and somebody just puts uh, an absolute um, king's ransom treasure in my hands. For no reason. I was just, I was happening to be standing at the gate. I mean, isn't that unfair? I didn't earn it. So he is unfair, but not like we think it's unfair. He's unfair because he's given us in excess of our due, not because he hasn't given us our due. On that note, I want to thank you. Listeners, you are listening to Millennium Discourses. We will be back tomorrow with another topic. We would like to thank Etzko Skatema. Till tomorrow, Allah Hafiz. Yes,